Welcome to I Wish They Knew, a show where leaders in business and education share big ideas that deserve more attention in about the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. I'm Joe Hirsch. Today's wish comes from Dr. Todd Cashton. Todd is an award-winning professor of psychology at George Mason University and a leading authority on well-being, curiosity, psychological flexibility, and resilience. Todd is the author of several great books, including Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to a Fulfilling Life, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and his latest, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. His research is featured regularly in media outlets like The Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, The New York Times, NPR, Fast Company, and Time, and he's consulted for and with organizations like Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, Prudential, General Mills, and the World Bank. Todd, welcome to the show. So good to be here. So what do you wish more people knew? I wish people knew that groups become smarter and wiser when you bring dissenting voices in the mix, even when those dissenting voices have the wrong idea. Okay, so I was always under the impression that we should follow the wisdom of crowds and things like that. You're saying that groups actually become smarter and better when individuals can share their own wisdom? When there is at least one, preferably two, people that disagree with the majority conventional view that's there. And then they bring those ideas into the mix. And so in some ways, one way of thinking about this is from a diversity lens is we are, we basically as organizations have like a B minus in collecting diverse people into the room. We basically are close to a D to an F and how do we extract their unique ideas and perspectives? And one thing we tend to like, whether we say this explicitly or not, is we like diverse people, but we kind of want them to be harmoniously fitting in with the rest of the group. And what the science shows is it's really is what makes them unique? How are they thinking differently? What's their different perspective that's going to slow down the speed of decision making, but lead to higher quality decisions? So by insubordination, are, are you talking about people who are willing to speak their minds and speak uh, their and share and speak their own backgrounds and experiences, tap their own wisdom in the face so, of dissenting views? Yeah, we definitely want to add. So the title is meant to be provocative, but really it's principled insubordination. And that's the notion is that you see an outdated, outdated norm. So you can think about, we, there's been a recent conversation about the temperature in an office where it's designed for male bodies more than female bodies, or that an iPhone, the, the, the width of it is designed for the digit span, the hand, the hand width of a man as opposed to a woman. So those, those outdated norms have affected how you design products, how you design how an organization, how organization's building should be constructed in terms of the temperature and the layout. And the dissenting voice speaks up not because they're just mad or because they want to be seen as smart, is they see is there's something wrong, but nobody's pointing it out, and I'm going to be that one. Okay, so they want to make visible the things that may be flying beneath the surface. Or point out the problem that everyone realizes, but nobody wants to tackle. Mm, okay, so that's interesting. I've always thought of insubordinates as people who are just about to get fired. <laughs> so, so you're you're saying 
that insubordination is not an act of just actual defiance, but it's about getting better ideas out there, ideas that aren't getting heard. And in the book, you talk about four different types of insubordinates. Walk us through those. Yes. Yeah, so you could think about over the course of time, history, and culture, you have innovators. So that's when you have your, your battle between Edison and Nikola Tesla in terms of who's going to create the light bulb. And you had, um, and those two individuals, they were challenging, what can we do besides whale oil to actually make sure that people can stay up and read and do work and hang out with their family at nighttime? Um, so that's those are your innovators. And, you know, we put the the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musk on a pedestal. Um, the other one, which I'm actually a bigger fan of, is culture shifters. And this is where you get someone like Frederick Douglass, who decided it's not acceptable to have to be a slave. But I'm not just going to fight back against society and my master. I'm actually going to say, teach myself how to read. And then when he actually immigrated to the north, where there was basically abolitionists were running the country, they were still treating him as if you're going to be our token to actually make money for you giving speeches of why slavery is bad. And he's, again, he revolted in, and was an insubordinate and said, I'm not going to speak on your terms. I'm going to speak on my terms. And I'm not here to make you money because you're not my new master. So he would be an example of a culture shifter. One individual who's, who basically showed a number of people that even the North's way was still problematic, even though it was slightly better than the Southern way. Um, a third archetype that you see for principled insubordination is for those people that are niche carvers. And that's my term for people that decide that the way I could live my life and have more well-being and not interfere with other people's well-being, but it doesn't fit with the social zeitgeist of the day. So you can think of people that decide, I don't want to have kids. I don't want to be married. I want to be single forever. I want to live van life. I want to be like a digital nomad. When these ideas were first brought into the world, we scoffed at them. And then we realized as you got to know people that live these lives, it's perfectly okay to be single as long as you're a good person. Perfectly okay not to have a physical home that's in one spot if you're a good person. And the list goes on and on in terms of how you can live your life. And the fourth one are your defenders. And these are the people that decide I'm not going to allow bullies in the workplace, outside of the workplace to infect and toxify the lives of other people. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of bravado to say you're going to risk yourself physically and socially to put yourself on the line to protect somebody else. Okay, so insubordinates are in sync. They're in sync with their own sense of values, their own sense of self. And I guess that's the principled insubordination. It's not just I'm looking to pick a fight. It's not just that I'm looking to defy and deny. I want to actually apply the values that and the principles that I think are important. And that's why I'm speaking up and standing up for that. Right. And in some way, and this goes with the work of Dominic Packer in particular, which shows that those people that disagree with the group that they're a member of, it's usually because they care so much about the health and longevity of the group. It's that I am willing to take the hit to my status and my ego and my emotions because I care so much about the group. And yet there are so many people who say that 
why why would you disagree? Why would you make this meeting longer? Like, why would you not go with the people that created this company in the first place? And so we really have to reframe how we think about dissenters and by focusing on their intent and motivation. Okay, so I recognize the value of dissent. I have principled insubordination, but I also feel like I don't have the standing to actually speak up and speak out. So what are some ways that someone like me who can bring people over to my side, even though I myself may not feel like I have the power to do so? Yeah, so there's a lot of work about a minority dissent. And one of the best ways of doing this in the workplace today is having those one-on-one meetings with people who have, are the ones that everyone wants to sit with at the lunch table, the one who they want to win their favor and make them laugh, listen to their stories. So they have social cachet. Or as you're saying, they have, if you think about a vertical hierarchy in organization, they're higher up than you on the rungs in terms of power and status. When you meet one-on-one, especially with who you think is going to be your detractor in a group meeting, a couple things happen. First, is you invite them as a collaborator and ask them, listen, I'm about to speak to the entire group and I want to know ahead of time what concerns and complaints and beefs you might have so I can address them before that meeting. And the second one is you're saying, I realize you are a smart person. I realize you have value. And in some ways I am co-towing to you one-on-one as an homage to my respect for you. And when you go into that group meeting, you name that person, not as your nemesis, but as I made sure to go to Julie first because I knew that she has great ideas and could tinker with what I'm thinking about and improve them. And now you've disarmed them and you've attached their power and status to amplify your own voice. Okay, yeah. So rather than view this as breaking with the group, you actually are engaging the group and I guess, trading what you believe to be your lack of power for something that everyone has, and that is influence. And you're also acknowledging is that every group has small factions. Mm -hmm. And the more factions you have, often the more problematic an organizational culture tends to be. But use this to your advantage. Which person is leading each one of those factions that you can bring together? So through the context of, you know, two brains are better than one and three brains are better than two. And so when you are talking about your ideas, you don't put yourself as the nucleus. You put these other people who are tinkerers and helped, you know, expand your ideas as they're the nuclei. And that makes you more persuasive. And it makes it feel as if there is increasing mobilized support for your ideas, even if it's a little bit of an illusion. Mm. Okay, that's an interesting idea. So you're calling this kind of insubordination an art form, which you know I can appreciate that. But for leaders out there who are worrying about the impact that this may have on team morale, team dynamics, and I don't know, potential action by, by HR, what's the skill set here? I mean, how can leaders promote this culture of dissent without disaster? <laughs> Well, one of the best strategies that we and everything I'm talking about has some scientific evidence behind it. One of the best strategies to building off of these one-on-one meetings before the group starts is to start collecting ideas that are so that when you like people individually, and then share those ideas isolated by who was the progenitor of those ideas. So imagine having 
everyone has a one-page handout. Here's a list of ideas of companies that we can actually acquire or merge with. And nobody is listed as who brought that idea. So now you're discussing it on the merit by themselves. And in this way, a leader and a powerful person can, can see the advantages of ideas without worrying about, I am focusing on someone who has only six months experience and is a newcomer in this organization. I'm focusing on the person that everyone knows is cantankerous and is actually taking up a spot that should be given by a young buck who actually has new computer knowledge and they should be joining this organization. So you remove all of those social relationship conflicts out of the situation and focus on task conflict. Mm. Yeah. So shifting that dynamic can be one way. I wonder about the, the power of a leader to invite dissent and to model that for the team. What have you seen on that? Yeah. There's a lot of research of making it very clear is the way that a leader and by a leader, it's not just the person who's at the head of the table. It is whoever is socially attractive from the perspective of others in the group, like the cool person um, to be very clear with those characters is when, when someone descends from the group, the first develop a response pattern where you're saying, listen, I love your ideas, not your delivery was a little bit off, but I want to focus on the ideas that you had. And what you're communicating is not just to that person and this situation is that you're rewarding someone for disagreeing with it, showing courage and disagreeing with the group. You are showcasing that even if you actually have are overly emotional and overly attached to your ideas, we're going to separate that away from what is the quality of what you're actually saying. And as you start to do this meeting after meeting, email after email, the group starts to learn is the way that I could actually win approval and status is not by going along with the herd. It's actually by showcasing some curious questions, some skepticism, and some new, maybe half-baked ideas and bring it to the group. So we're, we're in an age of apprehension and I guess a, a culture of caution in so many workplaces. What would you say to leaders out there who would like to create a culture where there's principled insubordination, where people do speak up and speak out, but are hesitant because of perceived repercussions? I think you, everybody should be, just like we should have implicit bias trainings, just as we should be having sexual harassment trainings, we should be having group dynamic trainings. And one of these trainings that I think should be in there, and this could be done just by anyone who's at the helm of a group in terms of you're basically the one that created the agenda for this group, is that you want to focus on while we are a good team and there's harmony and there's cohesion and we'd love to be positive in this group, as we're making this decision, as we're developing this thing before it goes to market, I want us to shift from harmony harmony and positivity to critical thinking, independent thinking, and creative thinking. And that's going to lead to a few costs. Things are going to take a little bit longer. Um, there's going to be some friction and some emotional distress in the room, some anxiety, some worry, and maybe some irritation. And if you can front load this and prepare people for the mixed emotions that are going to rise, then you diffuse some of the defensiveness that often occurs in these group meetings. The book is The Art of Insubordination, and the author is Todd Cashin. He doesn't seem like much of an insubordinate himself. 
Todd, thank you for sharing your wish with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show. It helps others find us. For more ideas on how to communicate with impact, visit my website, joehirsch.me. See you next time.